How to create a glitch, folds in time. In this episode, I'll be discussing the nature of time in regards to direct, indirect ground, and the consensual and non-consensual reality. In the ordinary course, in a closed social system with no outs, reality is fundamentally non-consensual. In this form, time contains no folds, everything projected is expressed. Think of the inert substance of experience as a ribbon or rubber band. The more folds in it at various places along its length, the more stretched and thin is its substance from one point to another. The more stretched it is, the faster time moves. The moment that a single no statement is applied, is the moment a filter eliminates the non-consensual, supplanting the non-consensual with a projected consensual reality. So, what is a no statement? A no statement is the inhibition of an impulse, the negation of a reaction, which undermines the non-consensual's ground and grounds the consensual. It is essentially acting upon a perception of the other, which makes it indirect ground. Now, application of a filter, a no statement, indirect ground, has an impact on the experience of time. The more that is filtered out by a particular filter, the more folds in the rubber band, the more closely the second person will mirror the projections of the former, the easier will be their action, which is fully grounded, and the faster the projector will experience time. A narrow filter working upon the inert substrate of experience will render time stretched and thin. The folds will be many. Now, filters can either stretch the rubber band, filter out a great deal by their grounding, as indirect ground, speed the experience of time, or they can filter out very little, and slow the experience of time. As they transition the experience of time to one that is slower, there will be numerous folds in time. This means that there will be numerous edited out divergent and convergent pathways of experience, which render the substance of experience rather corrugated by the divergence and convergence of these pathways superimposed on the main projected stream of experience. Corresponding to this, occurs the concentration of expectation, the greater the number of folds in time, the greater the concentration of expectation. Likewise, care, which manifests as this concentration, focuses it. Letting go, or releasing attachment corresponds to the stretching of the rubber band again. In this episode we will be discussing the relevance of the path of affirmation to assertive thinking and concealment. In this episode, we will be talking about the difference between the path of negation and affirmation as it relates to the expression of meaning. The path of negation is ultimately a path which involves the projection of a filter on others, limiting their ability to express themselves according to that particular filter. Individuals subject to that filter will find themselves in a consensual reality and from the standpoint of their expression of meaning and self will be limited except during outs to a role-based identity. When the negating individual absents themselves, only then will the other actors be able to express themselves fully. The path of affirmation also projects, but it projects an assertiveness with respect to a perception of the other. It asserts what is a non-consensual reality on others to the extent that others act along the path of negation. That being said, the path of affirmation and assertiveness is to that path is contagious because once negation is undone the individual becomes accustomed to the non-consensual reality that follows. Now, further to the above, the path of negation being the path of concealment, 
produces in others the involuntary concealment of their selfhood to the extent that this negation produces the consensual reality, and barring outs, which permit the actors to express themselves fully. In other words, it is in the path of negation that we project or manifest reality in accordance with an archetypal assertion. It is in the path of affirmation that we find our negation undermined and our self-manifested non-consensually according to a affirming narrative. Thus, regardless of whether we follow the path of negation or the path of affirmation, our observations tailor others' behavior according to given narratives, narratives that ultimately may result in a non-consensual reality, one produced by our absence or presence respectively. Be that as it may the end result of the path of affirmation pursuant to assertive affirmation is pure and simple emotionality, a level of expression which belies concealment. Ultimately however this expression is constructed upon a perception of another and therefore is indirect ground, a self-limiting form of foundation that belies our ultimate control over the expression of meaning and the substance of reality. Now it may be true that the path of affirmation is the only genuine way of experiencing others as they experience themselves, but it is a highly self-limiting form of expression and one that belies individual identity in pursuit of the group. For in accepting the assertive affirmation of others you undermine the individuality which precedes and induces the filter of negation. In its place, is a form of identity which fuses the two halves of self, and which forces one to accept a non-consensual reality composed of others' expectations, which is really the crux of the problem because it means accepting the solidity and uniformity of a reality which is objective. Although the path of affirmation is certainly attractive, and perhaps even more honest for the self and expression, it is one not without the trappings of a physical view of reality based upon set rules and clear laws. It also represents a reality in which individuals are disconnected from their archetypal constellations in favor of a blending of the non-consensual realities of dualistic identities. In this episode, we will be discussing negation, the internal mind and a new concept called channeling. As discussed in a previous episode, the creation of an internal mind, a private space for introspective thought, is the result of folds in time, the presence of negating thoughts. Typically this means that it is a cooperative endeavor, the result of closed mirroring thoughts on the part of two interacting individuals. The presence of these mirrored closed thoughts delimits the extent to which individuals can communicate, and the extent of the underlying gateway. In other words, when individuals do not maintain a baseline of mirrored closed thoughts the result is the experience of the unity of consciousness. The absence of an enclosure for thought processes generates open thought pairings. These open thought pairings form automatically between interacting individuals. In the presence of enclosure, it's the internal open thoughts which pair. This is what I call channeling. Now, to understand this graphically, in deference the first individual has a closed thought in its external box and an open in its internal. This transforms the open internal to the external of the second individual. But when the external closed is mirrored by the second individual we have enclosure and a fold in time, which preserves the pairing of the two internals. Representing folds in time, enclosure of thought, as mirrored closed thoughts is between two individuals, is akin to the recognition that closed postures imply a circumscribing of the sphere of activity of an individual or a limiting of his or her responsiveness to external communication. 
closed postures deny our inclusion in an activity or discussion. In this episode, we will be talking about a theoretical basis for the folds in time discussed throughout this podcast. Our discussion begins with a classic experiment in quantum physics, the quantum eraser experiment and the delayed choice experiment. Quantum theory tells us that you cannot know the position and velocity of a particle at the same time. The act of measurement collapses the wave function, resulting in the wave taking on the form of a particle. The classic wave-slit experiment involves sending a wave of light, a photon, at two slits in a screen. Quantum theory tells us that the wave goes through both slits until such time as it is measured. The moment that measurement is employed, the wave function collapses and it is as if it went through one of the two slits. The quantum eraser experiment involves the same experiment however instead of retaining the measurement, some time later, before it is reviewed, it is destroyed or erased. In this experiment, the wave function becomes a particle then after the information is destroyed, returns to a wave. Thus, it is as if the particle has gone through one slit, then, after the information is erased, through both slits. This experiment tells us that one outcome can be observed before the information is erased, and both can be observed after it is erased. Now, this experiment is important because it shows us that the same principles could reveal an outcome of a chance event to an observer, as the measuring device, and then, once that information is lost, both chance possibilities could have occurred. This tells us that so long as the information is not retained, it is possible to observe one event in the past with one outcome and then both outcomes at some time in the future. This is precisely the type of principle which could form a basis for the folds in time I describe in this podcast. Essentially what I am suggesting is two principles as a basis for these folds in time. One, the information or observation, experience must be made in the past, of an event with a single outcome. Two, the memory must be erased or destroyed in the future, with both possible outcomes. Now, these two principles treat experience and observation as measurement and memory as preservation of the information, and forgetting, as erasure. If we understand that we are the measuring device, then looking backwards in time, through the information we retain of an event, it would be possible to observe dual events, in flux, as if the particle has gone through both slits so to speak. Thus, it makes sense that an event could happen in the past, impacting the distribution of objects in a room, for example, with that information erased that is the objects all returned to their original place and the memory erased or destroyed at a later time. This reveals another principle, namely if you observe a glitch, that memory or the information represented by it will be erased or destroyed at a later time. Thus, one of the side effects of observing a glitch is that you can rely on the fact that at a later time you will have a conventional explanation for it, the information will be destroyed. I describe folds in time as events that happen outside the context, events that seem out of time or place, precisely because they occur when the meaning is in flux, when context has yet to be deployed, destroying the fundamentally unsound reality which occurred in the past. So for example, you may find a stray hair where it should not be, or smell something that doesn't make sense in the context. There may be traces of these events in the past, so long as you don't remember what actually happened. Thus the quantum eraser experiment gives us a clue to how reality works in the macroscopic world of experience. Thus it makes sense that our reality can be consensual, 
with a kind of reality in flux, between our involvement, between our observation, a kind of dual, or infinite, multiplicity. In this episode we will be talking about intentionality and body image. As indicated in a previous podcast, deference, that is, the acquiescence or consent to an exchange, manifested as postural releases in the face of the tonic in social exchanges, is preserved in muscle memory. That is to say, that individuals will act out the expectations of the tonic in response to this deference, during subsequent encounters with the tonic. In other words, emotional coupling produces time-displaced expectation matching in the dominant of the tonic's desires or impulses. Practically what this means is that the dominant will facilitate the impulses of the tonic well after their social exchange ends, so long as they continue to socially interact. From this we can see that expectations project intentions. What this means is that before we act, in the time between moments, in the seconds before we initiate or execute an action, there is a kind of projection of our bodies into the space between this moment and next. Likewise, as this type of intentionality is reflected in our muscle memory, we can say that it is not the mind which projects but rather the body itself. To the extent that the projected intention alters the body image of the actor, this too may be processed, so to speak, in the moments before an action. This can be seen with respect to physical exercise as well. As explained in a recent podcast, Season 14, Episode 3, physical exercise such as weight lifting enhances the physical territoriality of an actor. The space of physicality which surrounds our body is nothing more than the space in which we are able to project our intention into the future. But, exercise such as weight lifting also, by becoming repetitious, produces adjustments in our body image, alters our body mechanics, and eliminates many of the releasing postural adjustments which correspond to postural releases. Replacing the implicated motor memory of deferent actions plays a role, but so too does the reduction of our natural postural releases in response to social tension. A person who exercises in this fashion reduces their susceptibility to the expectations of the tonic by limiting the windows through which they might act further to deference. Thus a specific plan to exercise on a repetitive basis can concentrate the expectations that we produce and the intentionality we project. Further, they will integrate us so to speak within our cycles or rhythms of bodily activity. Although exercise is not a pathway to producing a glitch, necessarily, it can enhance one's ability to project one's intention and thereby enhance the potency of one's impulses. This can make the production of a glitch easier through the method of projecting an intention and changing one's execution at the last second as set out in advanced glitching of the complete series. Finally, actors will often alter their self-identification as is result of the impulses of others as a form of misdirection. It is not uncommon to become someone else in response to a social stressor. Thus, the projection of intention can have consequences for the self-identification of social actors within a social system. In this episode we will be bringing together the last episode with Season 5 Episode 3, which discusses the phenomenon of body switching. Now in previous episodes we talked about how appropriation follows the principle of conservation, that all impulses are expressed, by ourselves, through folds in time, by alters in distinct universes or by others. 
In this episode we will be discussing how others express and appropriate those impulses. In the moments between moments, between this moment and the next, our consciousness, through the agency of our bodies, projects intention. This intentionality enters the space between moments, during which time it may be appropriated. But, it may also lead to expression according to the potency of the action. If it is appropriated, it will be appropriated by someone with whom we have a gateway, either personally or vicariously through others. During this appropriation, the potency of the action, and our self-image, is supplanted by another consciousness, and during the instant this happens, the phenomenon of body switching presents itself. The substitution of another into our place occurs through space and time, through the gateway which unifies our minds. The alternative is also true. If we retain the potency of the intention we may appropriate the physicality of another in such a way that we express the impulse. In this case, it is possible our self-image, in these moments, will mirror theirs. Body switching as a phenomenon also occurs between us and our doppelgangers, those with whom we share complex multifaceted gateways, preserving the continuity of our actions and minds. The complex archetypal convergence which precedes and follows this unity generates opportunities for appropriation and body switching. In effect, the processing between potency and intentionality, between inception and execution, generates a kind of infinite possibility for substitution and appropriation, unity and union. Body switching is the result of this unlimited space of potentiality created by folds in time. First of all, in the delayed choice quantum eraser experiment discussed in season 14 chapter 5, if you imagine that a beam of light is pointed at two slits in a screen, and the passage of the beam of light goes unmeasured, then it is as if it goes through both slits at the same time. But, in the act of measurement, the wave function collapses and it is as if the beam of light, now a photon, goes only through one slit. Now, that is the classical experiment, the delayed choice experiment involves taking a measurement, and thereby collapsing the wave function, and then, destroying the information. In this case, we discussed how if the measurement information is destroyed after the measurement, the light returns to a waveform, going through both slits. This tells us that actions in the future can impact events in the past, and specifically, transition a reality from one which is unitary to one which is multiplicitous. It also suggests a mechanism for these folds in time. In other words, a reality can be in flux until it is observed by an observing consciousness, whereupon it resolves, but can return to one in flux if that information is destroyed. How does this relate to the folds in time that we talk about? Imagine for a moment that there are multiplicitous possibilities animating each moment. The nature of those multiplicitous possibilities does not matter, except to say, that it becomes concrete and solid the moment that it is observed by an observing consciousness. That is to say, there could be myriad sequences leading up to this moment all but one of which resolve into a single pathway upon observation. Then, if that observation, or the information comprising it, the evidence so to speak, is destroyed, the now past which was concrete is in flux again, as if it travels through both slits. Now, how would one go about destroying evidence of the multiplicitous nature of reality? The answer is simple, time folds are more like time loops. 
the content of the experience which resolves the fluctuation is the same in all sequences, only in all but one it destroys the information of the past possibility. So, as an example, let's say your coworker comes into your office and spends 20 minutes talking about some work you have to do. But in another possibility, you spent those minutes in a passionate sexual exchange. Prior to the measurement both possibilities are true. But in measuring, in observing, only one is. But both are resolved by carefully reordering and cleaning up your office in the aftermath of the events. This is the action which destroys the evidence, which makes both pathways possible, which returns the past which has already occurred to flux, after the destruction of the information. To put it another way, the events which follow the divergence must be the same in both universes, and if they are, these events destroy the information which would preserve observation of both realities. Now, the second topic I want to discuss is the nature of meaning in the context of one's archetypal constellation. Meaning is determined at its most discreet by emphasis of language, tone, intonation. These things present two or more alternate meanings behind the same phrase. Multiplicity occurs when the tone inferred by others does not reflect the intended tone, changing, or reversing the ultimate meaning of the phrase. Now, archetypal constellations are non-spatial. They create linkages between the consciousnesses of two individuals who may not even both be present. When that tone is rationalized by one outside the social system in one fashion, it is also inferred by the other who is in archetypal union with the one inside the social system. In other words, different levels of a person's archetypal constellation produce uniformity of meaning through the congruent experience. Finally, a negating impulse, or a consciousness which exists in a state of negation, generates dialectical pairings in others, which reflect contradictory feelings, which negate the internal states of the one in negation. However, in this state, there is no synthesis because the dialectical thought pairings are antithetical and dialectical. Instead others act to negate our feelings by contradicting them with their own, leaving us in a vacuum of individual negation. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.